0: You are listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. And we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Hey, good morning Grace Point Church Northwest, Pastor Travis here, it's great to be with you this morning. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to go to the YouVersion app. On the events tab there, just type in Grace Point Church Northwest and you can follow along. Also, if it is your first time joining us this morning, I would like to encourage you to take your phone out and text the word welcome to 702-710-7411. That is, text the word WELCOME to 702-710-7411. You should receive a link, and once you do, go ahead and fill that out, and that'll help keep you in the know of all things that are taking place at Grace Point Church Northwest over this season. Now this morning, we're gonna continue in our series during the season of Lent called Dying to Live. Over the past few weeks, we've been challenged to put to death some things in order to experience greater joy and peace in Jesus. And this morning, we're gonna see that we're gonna be challenged to put to death isolation in order to love and live as a church during this time. So if you are able, I'd like to invite you to stand and follow along as our scripture is read. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. All right, you may be seated. How many of you guys know what an elliptical is? Well, I can tell you it's something I'm not very fond of. Several years ago, I went to the doctor and I found out I wasn't doing too well physically. So the doctor prescribed two things for me. He said, I need to start taking supplements and I need to start working out. So with that, my wife and I ended up going to the store and we bought this thing called an elliptical. Now an elliptical gives you the experience of cross-country skiing while walking upstairs. Both of those things aren't something I'm really fond of. I can remember I thought if I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna set this up in front of my TV and I'm gonna turn on SportsCenter, at least I'm gonna enjoy something. When I got on the elliptical, I noticed there were about six to eight preset programs and I remember thinking I'm not in that bad of shape, I'll just start at program number five. With that I hit on and I started to pedal and move my arms and all that stuff. All of a sudden, this two just starts flashing on the screen. I think, hey, this isn't that bad. Then it jumps up to a three and a four, and I remember thinking, hey, I could be here all day. But then all of a sudden, everything just changed. It went from a level four to like a level six, back to a two, to an eight, to a 10. By this time, my lungs were burning, my legs were aching, my shirt was just completely drenched in sweat, and my son had taken the remote and switched the TV to Caillou. This past week, as I was thinking back over that story, I remember looking at my family, thinking, you know what? Relationships are a lot like an elliptical. I mean, this past week, as we have basically been quarantined in our home, we start off the morning at a level two, right? We're at breakfast, everything's going fine. Then the next thing you know, we get to a level six, and that's when we start doing school. About lunchtime, we go back to a level four, and then coming out of lunch, as we try to finish up the school day, we go to a level seven or eight. And at night, when we try to put our kids to bed, at times it feels like it's a level 10, trying to convince them you're not on vacation, you need to go to bed. Now, I want to clarify something. In no way do I feel about my elliptical the same way I feel about my family. Second to Jesus, they are the greatest joy in my life. However, if my family was to stand here right now, they would say, these past couple of weeks have felt a lot like that. But here's what I want you to know, that no matter what level we are at, whether it's a 2, 4, 6, 8, or 10, one of the things you need to understand is that we are committed to each other. Why is that? Because we're a family. And are we not called as a faith family at Grace Point Church Northwest to show a similar type of commitment and devotion to each other during this time? You see, the church, guys, at its core, is not a place you go to, it's not a building, and it's not even a thing you tune into online. But rather, at its core, the church is a family. It's an identity given to you and a family you belong to in Jesus. You see, all of us who have trusted in Jesus have been adopted by God. That's what the scriptures say. God is our father and other Christians are our brothers and sisters. And just like I am devoted to my family, and we go through levels 2, 6, 4, and 10, what Paul is going to tell us here today is this. We need to be devoted to each other as a church family. No matter what level we are on, we need to be committed and devoted to one another because We are the family of God. However, before Paul tells them how they are to live, he takes some time in this letter to remind them of who they are. Why is that? It's because in the Christian life, it's important for you to understand that being always precedes doing. That is why, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is talking to a church, telling them that both of them are equally sinful before God. Within this church, you had Jewish Christians and you had Gentile Christians, and neither one of these groups really loved each other or even liked each other. As a matter of fact, one always thought they were better than the other. And that's why Paul, for three chapters, looks at him and goes, you both are equally sinful before God. Some of you are sinful by trying to keep all the rules and to earn God's favor. Some of you are sinful by trying to break all the rules, right? And to run away. And what Jesus has come to do, and he goes on in the next three chapters to tell him what Jesus has come to do is to rescue you both. And that's what chapters three through five are all about, that both of them experienced the grace of God by Jesus without a scrap of their assistance. Yet in chapters six through eight, Paul says the Holy Spirit has come into both of their lives to grow them, to shape them, to grow them to be more like Jesus. And then in nine through 11, he says all of this is just a free gift of God's sovereign plan. For 11 chapters, Paul tells this church who they are in Jesus before he tells them a single thing they are to do. And in chapter 12, verse 1, here is what we finally read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Why would Paul and I, and even myself right now take so much time to unpack this? It's because I believe you and me tend to misread the Bible. We tend to jump into the later part of these books, and what we jump into are the things called the imperatives, what we must do. But the gospel is not the imperatives about what you must do, but rather the gospel is rooted in the indicatives. That is what has been done for you you see, it doesn't matter where you read in your Bible, whether you read Paul, or you read the Gospels, or even read the Old Testament law. It always starts with what God has done, and therefore, in light of what God has done by grace for you, this is how you are to live. All false religions and ideologies say that if you want to be assured of God's love, you must do this, but that is not good news. You see, what I would tell you is that unless you are a Christian, unless Jesus has come and rescued you and save you, you have no power to do anything Paul talks about in this chapter. That's why this is so important. So in light of all that, Paul tells us how to live out our identity as a church, not to earn God's favor, but out of the overflow of favor that God has poured into our hearts through his son Jesus without a scrap of our assistance. So how are we to live as a church during the season? Paul tells us, look in Romans 12 verse 9. Here's what we read let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Paul starts by telling us that love is to be honest. It's not to be a facade. It's not to be fake. So many of us know what fake inauthentic love looks like. Why? Because of Monday nights. What comes on Monday nights? Usually it's the bachelor or the bachelorette. Now, when you watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, it is obvious there is a lot of fake, disingenuous love. This is especially true during the exit interviews. And whenever I've caught this show, that's the only part I really pay attention to. Why? Because you start to see people's true motives. You'll see this guy or this girl say, well, I didn't really love them, or I didn't really love her or him or anything like that. Rather, why are they on the show? To build up their name, to build their platform. And what Paul is saying here is that love in the church is not to be like that, it's to be real, it's to be honest, is to be authentic. R.C. Sproul is so helpful when he writes this, don't let your love be a kind of play acting. Some Christians have a reputation that is all too deserved for coming across as being plastic. They use such phrases like, oh bless you brother, God loves you, without thinking about them. How often are you and I in community group or in the church and we'll hear somebody say a prayer request or something like that and we'll say, oh I'll pray for you but we don't do it. How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, I've got this need, and then we respond with, hey, if you need anything, you just give me a call. However, when we see their phone number come up on our phone, we just let it go to voicemail. Paul says that when we love each other, we shouldn't play act. It shouldn't be fake. It shouldn't be a facade. It should be genuine. When I would come home when my daughter was younger, uh, she would act like a puppy Oftentimes when I would come into my house, I was greeted by my golden doodle, but then I would sit on the couch and my daughter would snuggle up against me and then she would just start sniffing in my ear or she would put her head under my hand so I would pet her. Why was she doing that? Is she a puppy? No. What is she doing? She is play acting. And how many of us have that kind of love? It's a play act. You see, Paul says that our love is to be genuine, that we are to love one another with a godlike love. Kent Hughes is so helpful here when he says this, But here the word is used to indicate the kind of love Christians are to show to others. A godlike love that loves regardless of the circumstances. A deliberate love that decides it will keep loving even if it is rebuffed. Many of us in here this morning are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. We've heard 1 Corinthians 13. It's like the big hall of fame love chapter in the Bible. We hear it oftentimes at weddings. We hear stuff like love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not rude and so on. However, what's important for you and me to understand is just simply this, Paul is not talking about a wedding there. What Paul is talking to or who Paul is talking to is the church. You see, the greatest example of Godlike love to be expressed is when brothers and sisters in Christ from various backgrounds and different walks of life come together in Jesus, are united in Jesus, and they love each other in spite of their differences. That's the type of love that shows off the glory of God to the world. Jesus says as much in John 13, 34 through 35. What does he say? He says, a new command I give you, love one another just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. That is why Paul tells us in this text that you and me are to abhor what is evil and we are to cling and hold fast to that which is good. We need to be radically against that which is wrong, that which destroys community, and hold fast to that which is good and that which unites. During the summer times, one of the things I kind of have a lot of fun doing is joking around with my kids around a pool. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll take them and I'll try to throw them into the pool. But if you've got kids or if you've ever been thrown into the pool or try to throw somebody into the pool, you know they don't go easily, right? What do they tend to do? They cling on to you. And they start to like you know grab you. And oftentimes when I would try to throw them in the pool, guess what? They pull me in. That's the image that Paul is giving us here. We are to abhor, to push away that which is evil, but we are to cling, hold fast, almost like, like glue to that which is good, that which builds up the church. In 1 Peter four nineteen, Peter tells the church there, he says this, that while they're going through his suffering, what are they to do? They're to entrust themselves to God while doing good. And during this season in which we are going through a lot of suffering, what are you and I to do? And trust ourselves to God, but then to do good. Paul goes on in verse 10 to say this, Love one another with brotherly affection. The NIV says, Be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We are devoted to so many things, aren't we? I'm sure I'm not the only one that when my TV show comes out for a second season, Uh, I'm not the only one who stays up all night binge watching until like 2 a.m. I mean, we're devoted to TV shows, but I would also say you and I, we're devoted to food. I hardly ever miss a meal. I do breakfast, lunch and dinner. I even throw some snacks in between. And there's this basketball team in Kentucky called the Kentucky Wildcats that I'm extremely devoted to. Now, I used to watch them and I used to like actually make my work schedule around their games, and I would cheer for them with all of my might. And about 11 years ago, we lost our head coach, and it was rumored that we were gonna hire this guy by the name of John Calipari. Now somebody had set up a live feed camera right outside Memphis University where John Calipari worked, and it was believed that he was gonna come out of that office, look at that camera, and say he was gonna come to the University of Kentucky and save our school and our just terrible basketball and just bring us back. And guess who watched every single minute of that live feed? I did. I put it up in the right-hand corner of my screen, and while I worked, I just kept looking, waiting for John to come out and just save the University of Kentucky basketball. However, John never came out. He went out the back door, flew to Lexington, and broadcasted it from there. However, when this whole thing was over, my wife had a Twitter account at the time, and here's what she wrote. So glad Cal Perry took the job. Now I can have my husband back. We are devoted to so many things, and think about it. Most of the things we devote ourselves to They don't love us back. You see, we love TV shows, and we continue to watch these shows, and if there's a particular episode that we don't like, we just kinda overlook that and just finish out the season. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has had a bad meal, but does that mean I stop eating? No, I'm still very much devoted to food. In Kentucky, they lose, they let me down, but guess what, with each new season, who is there to watch them faithfully? It is me. And when I consider my devotion to a team, a meal, and a show, in comparison to other brothers and sisters in Christ, I am so convicted. The reason for that is because my devotion to these things at times is far superior to my devotion to another brother sister in Christ. And I am so thankful that Jesus doesn't treat me and you the way we oftentimes treat other people. I mean, think about Peter in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 22, what does Jesus say to him? Satan has asked to shift you like wheat. Literally, Satan wants to shake you so hard that you are gonna fail. But what does Jesus tell Peter? I've prayed for you. And when you turn, that is when you repent, you turn from what you're doing, you come back to me. What do I want you to do? I want you to strengthen the brothers. In the Gospels, we see that Peter denies Jesus three times. And in John chapter 21, Peter is out fishing, probably thinking he blew his chance to be a disciple. And who shows up on the shore? Jesus. And what does he do? He reinstates Peter and he tells him, feed my sheep. And in Acts chapter 2, what does Peter do on the day of Pentecost when the church is just starting? He stands up and he preaches a message about his friend, his brother, and his Savior that came to rescue him and to rescue other people. You know how many friends I have that have ridiculed me, shamed me, and I give up on them and I don't talk to them anymore? Isn't that how Peter treated Jesus? And what did Jesus do? He didn't give up on him, did he? He reached out to him. Earlier in this letter of Romans, Paul writes in chapter 5 verses 8 and 10 that you and I before Jesus, what are we? We are weak. We are enemies. We are sinners before God. But while we were weak, sinful enemies of God, what did God do? He loved us so much that he sent Jesus to reconcile us back to him. But don't miss this. Jesus has also reconciled us to each other. That is why Tom Schreiner can write this of these verses. He says, Paul conceives of the church as a family that is even closer than one's own biological family. For four years of my life, I lived in a part of the United States in which less than or around 2% of the people were Christian. To become a Christian in that society meant you could lose your family. You could lose your friends. You could lose your job and your community. And I remember talking to this guy who ended up losing all of those things because he was following Jesus. And you know what he said to me? A once a week Bible study and a once a Sunday gathering doesn't make up for what I lost. He heard the church was a family, but when he looked at the church, he didn't see a family. You and I are to be devoted to one another with a family-type affection. Paul says we're to outdo one another in showing honor, which means we don't think less less of ourselves, but we think less about ourselves. We put others before us. And during a time in which you and I are advised to limit our physical affection, how are we to live this out? I would just say this. Use your words. Use your words. Write notes. Send texts. Send emails. I have a friend in my life that whenever I am going through, and he's a Christian, he's a brother in Christ, but whenever I am going through a tough time, this man will always pick up the phone and call me. There was even one point in my life where I was just in a really dark night of the soul and he flew from his state to this state just to spend time with me, just to hang out with me, to get me to go play ball. But do you know every single conversation I have with him, how he ends it? Do you know how he ends it? He says this, I love you, bro. I love you, bro. When is the last time you heard another brother or sister in Christ just look at you and just say, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're a family. That's what we need during this time. We need to love each other with genuine affection, brotherly affection, family type affection. Paul goes on in verse 11 to continue to show us how we are to live. He says this, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Right there, Paul points us to our main relationship. When we serve others, it's as if we are serving Jesus himself. I love what one theologian says. He says, a spirit-filled believer, by definition, cannot be boring. I mean, I love that. When you read of church history, you don't read of boring people. Think of Martin Luther, the old reformer. Literally, his biographies talk about how he fell into bed at night. One account says that he was so exhausted that he didn't change his bedsheets for an entire year. That's absolutely disgusting. When you read of D.L. Moody, oftentimes oftentimes his prayer at night was just simply, "'Lord, I'm tired, amen.'" John Calvin's biographers would were just marvel at his output, and John Wesley would ride anywhere on a horse, okay? Ride anywhere from 60 to 70 miles a day, preaching up to three times a day. These guys were anything but boring, and what motivated their service? Serving the Lord serving Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't honored by begrudging reluctant obedience. And what motivated these men and what motivates us is that to love with brotherly affection and express devotion and honor is when we keep our eyes on Jesus. You see, during this time, I know many of us have been connecting through Zoom and FaceTime and Google Hangout. And I can tell you, as I've been meeting with my community group and even with my own family on these platforms, it's easy to know when I get distracted because what happens? My eyes move from the camera somewhere else. And when that happens, if my, my wife is in the chat, she'll oftentimes say, hey, Travis isn't paying attention because what did she see happen? My eyes went off the camera and went to something else. And right now, as I've been talking through this, I imagine there are some of you in here right now just feeling this weight. And here's what I would do. For every one look you take at what you're not doing or every one look you take at your sin, here's what I want you to do. Take 10 looks to Jesus. Just keep your eyes fixated on him, marvel at him. You'll serve, you'll find out that this will change you because you'll serve not to earn his favor, but out of the overflow of love and favor, he has poured into your heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus during this time. In verse 12, Paul continues to talk to us and listen to what he says. He says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. As a faith family, we're going to encounter struggles, trials, and tribulations. And the way you and I get through these these times is by rejoicing in hope, being patient in the struggle, and being constant in prayer, not only by ourselves but with other people. When we see that word hope there, it's easy for us to misunderstand. Biblical hope is not naive optimism or wishful thinking. We say things like, well, I hope it's not windy today, or I hope the sun comes out, or I hope my team wins, or I hope I pass the test. But that's how a lot of people think about hope. But biblical hope is the confident assurance that God, by His power, will accomplish His purposes in His timing. It's a refusal to despair because no matter how bad it gets, we know God is good. I think it was the old preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon, you might have heard me share this before, that says something like this, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be confused. When I can't trace his hand, I can what? I can trust his heart. And that causes us to rejoice. But Paul says we not only rejoice in hope, but what do we do? We are constant in prayer. D.A. Carson once said this, he's never met a chronic warrior who enjoyed an excellent prayer life. And when we pray, we show our dependence upon God. You see, prayer is not an act of independence, but it's an act of dependence, looking to God to do what only God can do. When my kids are in need, what do they do? They go and they talk to their mom. Okay? And then sometimes they'll come over and talk to me. But when my kids come and they talk to us about their needs, it honors us because they're looking to us to fulfill that which they can't do. And in the same way, when you pray to God, you honor God for your acknowledging Him as the only one who can meet your need. Paul finishes up here in verse 13. Listen to what he says Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Right now, some of you guys are absolutely rocked. You're sitting there thinking, I'm a saint. If you grew up in a tradition that I did, saints weren't something you become. They were people you prayed to and through. But what Jesus is saying here is this, that the moment he saves you, rescues you, brings you into his family with God as your father and brothers and sisters, that makes you a saint. It simply means you are set apart. You are his, you are holy. When my kids... uh, want to make sure something, especially a food item, uh, remains in their uh, possession, what they'll oftentimes do is they'll take the wrapper off of it, lick it, and put the wrapper back on. When they do that, what are they basically saying? Dibs, this one's mine. Some of us have seen that old car commercial where the guy goes up and he licks the handle on the car, which is really, really disgusting to think about that. But why does he do that? What is he saying? Dibs, this one's mine. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus comes and he licks you. That would be weird. But in a similar way in which those guys are calling dibs, when Jesus saves you, that's what he is doing. He's saying, this one is mine. And what does Jesus say we do to those who are saints? How are we to treat them? He says that we are to meet the needs of the saints. What that means is we are to serve other Christians during this time. We are to love them, reach out to them, and to meet their needs. However, when you look at the world around us, we don't see a whole lot of that. Rather, what we see is a lot of hoarding. Recently, I heard a guy by the name of Ray Ortland. He's a pastor in Tennessee. He put this out on Twitter. He said, if we hoard, we're saying to God, you don't care about my needs. And we're saying to our neighbors, I don't care about your needs. Doubtly evil. Isn't it obvious that trusting God and loving one another go together so deeply, they are inseparable? You see, as we go through this time together, let us be authentic and real. Not just about our love and our affection, but I would also even say this. Let us be authentic and real about what we have and what we don't have. Some of us, as we go through this time, we're going to have resources to care for our brothers and sisters in need. And then there are some of us that as we go through this time, we're going to have needs, but we need to have the courage to make those known. John 13, what does Jesus say? If we love one another, If we love one another with the same type of love He loves us, what does that do? It shows the world we belong to Him. Let us love one another deeply and generously during this time. But let us also look for ways to love those who are not a part of the church. Throughout the scriptures, when you see that word hospitality, yes and amen, it talks about the church. But it also talks about the love for the stranger. And as you go in your neighborhood and as you go out, to meet your needs, to go to the store and all that. Look for ways you can serve other people around you. I got a, a story from my sister-in-law. She lives in Ohio, and she was about ready to walk into the grocery store. And as she walked in, uh, she noticed there was a man sitting alone in his car. Well, as he was sitting there, another person in the parking lot noticed him and walked over, and he was an older man. And the person asked him and said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm grocery shopping. With that, the person said, well, don't you realize you can use an app and just pick it up? You don't have to go in the store. And you know what he said? I don't even know how to use that. You see, there are resources available to those around us, but they don't know how to use it. And one of the things that you and I can do as we go through this time is genuinely love one another, but the community around us by doing what? Serving them and helping them during this time. So let us practice hospitality. Let's use Zoom. Let's use FaceTime. Let's use Google Hangout. And let's be the church to live and love one another, not pushing into isolation. Some of you guys are familiar with this guy by the name of Marcus Pearson, and I'll finish up with this. He sold a game called Minecraft for $2.5 billion. He has everything he's wants, but he's basically lonelier than he's ever been before. He put out a series of Twitter messages that were on the news a few years ago, and here's what he wrote. The problem with getting everything you want is that you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. He wrote another one, hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. And finally, he says in Sweden, I will sit around and wait for my friends with jobs and families to have time to go do stuff, watching my reflection in the monitor. You see, this man, I would argue, by worldly standards, has everything he wants, but his Twitter messages show that they don't satisfy. You and I are not meant to live in isolation, but rather we are meant to belong to Jesus' family, to live and love one another during this time. So Grace Point Church Northwest, let us do that fearlessly and passionately for the good of others and for the glory of God. Let's pray.